So today we're going to talk about a um, we're going to talk about a story that you're pretty familiar with, and it's a story of Thanksgiving, and so we'll get into that. But first of all, let me ask you this question: How was Thanksgiving? Good? You do all right? You guys eat well? You starting to make those commitments to get healthier now? We know that's how it is. Um, for the first time, we fried a turkey in a fryer. Yeah, the first time we did it. We did not burn our house down, which I thought was a win. Um, but it was, it was good. We really liked it. For those of you who are vegetarian, vegan, um, happy Thanksgiving as well. Um, <laughs> I want to apologize. I made so much fun of Tom at the 12 o'clock service last week, and I want to apologize to him. Um, and he actually, I made so much fun of him that he actually brought me a gluten patty. Um, <laughs> and I was like, here, try that. It was really good. So I'm coming to Tom's house next week, next, uh, next year for Thanksgiving, if that's all right. But um, I just want to apologize to him because I made a lot of fun of vegans. And I know that there's other vegans in the crowd too, but he's the only one I recognize. So, um... <laughs> not true. Anyway, we're going to be studying Luke 17, uh, the story of the 10 lepers in Luke 17. So why don't we jump in? We'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Um, there's, there's Bibles underneath most of the chairs if you want to grab one. We'll have it up on the screen as well. If you're at home, check out BibleGateway.com or if that's what you want to do here as well. Um, the New Living Translation, <clears throat> the NLT. So, <clears throat> excuse me, it begins like this. As Jesus continued towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. So Jesus is not that close to Jerusalem at this point. And that becomes important later on in the story. Luke 17, 12. As he entered a village, there 10 lepers stood at a distance. Now, this is not uncommon for us to hear a story about lepers in the, in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So this is not something necessarily uncommon. But there was kind of um, delineations between certain kinds of skin diseases. So there's lepsis in the Greek, which um, means scaly and is a word that can be used to describe a number of skin diseases. But then there's also skin diseases that are a little more profound, which we would call leprosy. Right, And so in the idea that leprosy, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 kind of lays out a very long and careful prescription for determining whether someone has this kind of dreaded disease. And of course, the local health inspectors, they were the priests. That's what they did um, because they had access to these scrolls and they understood. Um, so when, when you had, when you were determined to have this particular disease, um, there was something pretty significant that happened. You were no longer allowed any social contact with the people that you loved. And that the only people that you could ever associate with again were people who were suffering from the same disease. Now, you probably know all this, um, but that idea of separation is one of the most important and indelible marks that any of these diseases had. And it's also one of the most powerful things that Jesus could heal. See, when, right when you needed certain people the most, when you needed your family, when you needed the friends, those that you grew up with, those that you um, knew you, you couldn't even come near to them. You couldn't associate with other people in the synagogue anymore or really any other social environment whatsoever. You were an alien from all of the life that you knew before, left only with those who were on the same kind of horrific journey that you were on. 
Now, we don't always understand this disease, but Dr. Paul Brand is probably the, the, the foremost researcher on leprosy, what he calls Hansen's disease, and he's a world-renowned expert on this. And he gives us some pretty important insight into the modern and up-to-date look of this particular um, disease. So Dr. Paul Brand, calling it Hansen's disease, he basically says it's a cruel disease, not in the same way that other diseases are cruel, because it primarily acts as an anesthetic, numbing the pain cells of the hands, the feet, the nose, the eyes, and the ears. Not so bad, one might think. Hey, that's great. A disease with absolutely no pain, because most diseases are felt because of their pain. But what makes this painless disease quite so horrible? Well, Hansen's disease's numbing quality is the reason it is so horrible. For thousands of years, people thought that this disease caused the ulcers on hands and feet and face, which eventually led to the rotting flesh and the loss of limbs. However, that's not really what happens. When you have no more pain receptors in your hands, in your feet, in your eyes, in your ears, you actually can do things that other people won't normally do. For instance, there's a story of, uh, Dr. Paul Brand tells a story of being in a village in Africa with some of those who are afflicted with Hansen's disease. And one gentleman was cooking a potato in an oven. And as that potato fell, he just, sorry, in a fire, as that potato fell into the fire, he just reached in and grabbed it because he can't feel any pain. Well, that works to get the potato that doesn't work so well on the skin that's now on fire or burning or ulcerating, right, blistering up. And if you've ever burned yourself, you know how incredibly painful that is. But when it ceases to be painful, all of a sudden you can do things that you wouldn't have done before, which is not always good. He tells a story of one time when he was in India, he was trying to get into a locked gate. And so he's working this locked gate with this key and he cannot get the thing open. And so this young boy, about 10 years old, who's afflicted with Hansen's disease, walks up and says, oh, I can do that, grabs it and just cranks on the key, opens the lock and he gets in. Um, Paul Brand looks at him and, and realizes this boy must have incredible strength, but that wasn't really it. The young boy basically tore his, all his skin off down to the bone, um, sliced his finger, and it was just bleeding, but he didn't know. So he was able to do things we weren't normally able to do. And so that becomes part of the problem. This is why they lose their limbs, they lose their fingers, they lose their hands. And unfortunately, those who are still to this day, those who are afflicted with the same disease have a tendency to come together. I mean, what do we say, right? We say misery loves company. And while this is true, they also needed each other because there was no one else they could reach out to for help. There was no one else who could help them by health law, by the Levitical law. They were by themselves. So they cry out to Jesus and then they say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us in verse 13. Now, master is an interesting term that we'll get to in just a second, but what they're doing is they're crying for mercy. They knew that he was their only hope but it was a question as much as it was a statement, as much as it was a, an admonition to have mercy on us. It's a question, will you have mercy on us? Can you have mercy on us? Now they use this term master, which is not a term like rabbi that most people had used when they reached out or spoke of Jesus. This term master, the Greek word is epistos, which actually means master or renowned, master of renown, like 
almost even to the point of magic, someone who could do things that other people couldn't do. So maybe they're hedging their bets a little bit because they definitely would have heard of him. Jesus is at this point going around doing ministry. And as he's doing that ministry, he is actually healing people. So they would have known who he was. We don't know where these lepers were from. We knew that Jesus was between Galilee and Samaria. We don't know where these lepers were from. But now Jesus does something really fascinating. In Luke 17, 14, it says, he looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priests. That's all he did. Now, this is different than what we see in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus reaches out and touches a leper, where he, he physically manifests his love with the touching of a leper's skin, which it, clearly he didn't have to do. And here he doesn't go through that trouble. I think in Luke 5, what Jesus is trying to tell us is that love has to have skin on it, that compassion moves us to go sometimes into harm's way to make sure we can take care of people. But here, Jesus makes it like an offhand comment. It's almost like he's like, go, go show yourselves to the priests. Go do what you have to do. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy, says scripture. Now, this is what's fascinating, all right? Jesus acknowledges the system. He acknowledges the system of healthcare. He acknowledges how they were determined to be sick with this disease. And what's fascinating is that this system that wouldn't recognize him now has to recognize him. This made the system acknowledge who he was. And by the way, this is not an easy process to be declared clean. Leviticus, 13, 14, and 15 outlines the way that you have to go, all the things you have to go through in order to be declared clean. And they take eight days, and it takes three times of going through that eight-day cleansing and acknowledgement process. It's not a small thing. Jesus says, listen, you're not going to acknowledge me, that's fine, but you're going to have to acknowledge my handiwork. <laughs> and you're going to have to be with it for a while, because I know your system. But let's put ourselves in the leper's shoes just for a moment. What would it be like? Some of them probably decades not being with their families, not being um, you know, able to be part of society, not being able to worship in the temple anymore. What would it have been like to be walking with a cane because you, know, you had half of a foot and all of a sudden you realize, wait, I don't need this, I don't need this cane anymore. Or I, or I can feel my hands again or my my larynx works again because it's not atrophying again. All of a sudden to see that pink skin, that's actually, you know, the way it's supposed to be. It wouldn't have been that pink probably. From the Middle East, it would have been darker than that. But all of a sudden they would have been like, whoa, this is exciting. And by the way, you'd be excited too with that healing. When someone gets healed, you get really excited for that healing, right? So you're going to be like, hey, I want to get back to my family. I haven't seen those people in a long time. It's time to get back to the people I need to. And so they would have been excited to get to the temple. Luke 17, 15 says this. It's where the story pivots. One of them, when he saw that Jesus was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. You see, they're healed on their way. One recognized, wait a second, wait a second, this is a big deal. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done, says Luke 17, 16. This man was a Samaritan. This man was a Samaritan. The leper does three things. This man who recognized Jesus did three things to draw attention to Jesus. The first thing he does is he shouts. 
And the word that is used is finsmegas, or a loud voice. By the way, this is not the first time somebody has encountered Jesus and then used a loud voice. The other time was in Luke 8, 28, when an unclean spirit recognized who Jesus was, and he started shouting in a loud voice. But he said very different things than this man did. <laughs> this man is like... Praise God. So the first thing he does, he shouts. The second thing he does is he praises. Because anytime we have an encounter with the living God, it sends us to praise. Every single time. Right? We don't sing these songs just so we sing these songs. We sing these songs because we've had an encounter with the living God. And that's a natural response to the goodness of what God is. He praises. It's from this posture of praise. And if you don't, if you come encounter with the living God and you don't praise God, you may need to wonder what it is that you're focusing on. Right? These guys, listen, the other nine were like, listen, we're healed. Let's go. They're focusing on themselves. This man was like, wait a second. Wait a second. Let me go back. The last thing he does is he thanks Jesus for what he did. He recognizes that Jesus didn't have to heal, but did it out of love. And he does this from this form of worship. You see, this was a grace that happened. This was not wages earned. Do you thank your boss every time he pays you or she pays you? Are you like, thank you so much? Like, no problem. No, you're like, you deserve that. And if your check doesn't come, you're not like, hey. You're like, hey. That's not, what this was, that's not what was going on here. This man, he shouts in a loud voice to bring the focus on Jesus. He praises Jesus because of what he had done. And he thanks Jesus for what he did. So what about the other nine? You see, they were rushing to be proven healed. Only one out of 10 recognized that God wasn't in the temple and that the temple isn't where God needed to be worshiped. It was in the presence of Jesus that that single leper wanted to be. But, but you got to think about it this way. Because, you know, he was a Samaritan. So that temple didn't mean the same thing. It wasn't his temple system anymore. So he's rushing to the temple to get cleansed and was like, wait a second, I don't even worship there anyway. In fact, they won't even let me in. Where am I going? I'd rather be with the one who healed me than with the system that's going to call me healed. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we fall in love with the system that we think makes us right when the system does nothing, hopefully, but reflect who Jesus is. And when Jesus is there, system's not so important anymore. Amen. It's just not. And Jesus actually calls it out, right? Luke 17, 17. Jesus says, eh, did I heal 10 men? Where those other nine dudes go? <laughs> Has no one returned to give glory to God except this Foreigner, he says in Luke 17, 18, has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Reminds me of John 1, 11. He came into his own. His own recognized him not. And by the way, the word that Jesus uses, the Greek word that Jesus uses for foreigner, you know, that's on the outside of the temple saying, by the way, foreigners, you can't come in. There's a court of the Gentiles. You can get close, but you can't actually come in. I love the fact that this Samaritan is like, I'm going, I'm, wait a second. They're not even going to let me in. Their system is so biased against certain people that it's not even going to let me in. You know what? I'm going to go to the source. I don't need the system. I'm going to go to the source, right? Because sometimes the source is way more powerful than the system. In fact, the source is always way more powerful than the system. Luke 17, 19, and Jesus said to the man, hey, stand up, go. Your faith has healed you. Like, it's good. We're good. Thank you. We're good. I love the fact 
that we look at. And listen, there have been so many sermons and so much scholarship done on the other nine. I love the fact that, that Luke's not all that interested. Luke's like, yeah, they didn't come back. But this guy did. Because this is the one we need to be focused on. This is the one we need to think about. This is the one we need to model our lives after. Because no system is going to declare to be more important than Jesus. And this man recognized it because it wasn't his system anyway. By the way, I love the fact that Seventh-day Adventists do communion as an open communion, that we invite everybody in. You don't have to be part of our system to be part of our communion table. That's really important. And that's one of the best things that we've ever done as a denomination is say, y'all come because we all participate in the table with Jesus Christ. Gratefulness does a few things. And we see it in the story. You see, gratefulness makes you focus on the other. Very few people, there are some, but very few people when asked what they're grateful for, say, me. I'm pretty grateful for what I've done. I think I'm pretty awesome. And you should all maybe be grateful for me. Very few people say that. Some do, very few. Gratefulness makes you focus on the other. I mean, when we asked around the table what we're grateful for, I wasn't saying how well I cooked the turkey. I was thankful for the fact that we had it, and for the fact that it had been provided, and the fact that we can come together as a family, and the fact that we can share what God's bounty gives us. Gratefulness makes you focus on the other. Gratefulness slows you down in your pursuits and what you want. Those other nine, running to be declared healed, forgot that the healing's actually more important than the declaration of healing, right? They were, and, and listen, let's not, let's not hate on them. They were excited. They were healed. You'd be just as excited. But gratefulness slows you down a little bit. The Samaritan had to turn and go, that can wait. I want to talk to this one. And you know, here's the funny thing about gratefulness. Gratefulness begets gratefulness. The more we are grateful for what God has given us, the more we are grateful for what God has given us. Because we begin to see all these other things, all these things that God gave. Lord, thank you for the turkey and the green bean casserole <laughs> and the yams and the mashed potatoes and whatever else you had. Because when you go to the source, you know the source is abundant. The source has so much that you're never gonna stop thanking him. You're never gonna stop praising him. You're never gonna stop shouting. I love what it says in Luke 6, 38. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Now I want you to think about this. Press down, shaken together to make room for more running over and poured into your lap. This is, this is you standing at your refrigerator with all the leftovers of Thanksgiving going, I don't know how we're going to put them in. And you like shaking things and moving them because that's the bounty. That's the blessing that you have. It's overwhelming. You'll take, you'll take a half gallon or a gallon of milk out and feel like I can leave it there for a half hour. It'll be fine if I can just get these yams in there. Pressed down, shaken together, make room for more. Running over, poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. You see, when we focus 
on the source, not the system, we realize it's got everything that we've ever needed. And so that's what we're going to do right now. And this is the way it's going to work. If you're at home, we want you to get whatever emblems that you have, and we'll pray over them with you. And you've got the, the little, we understand, these are not, these are not formal. <laughs> these are weird. Um, and taking the top off, like we get it, that's a very small piece of bread. So once you get it in your hand, hold it. Wait, you don't have to open it yet because I'm going to do a few things first. But when we do it, at the end, I'll pray over it and then say, take and eat and take and drink. That's at the end. But I want to go through these because communion stops us. Communion makes us focus on the other. Communion is gratefulness. You see... There's two parts to communion. I mean, there's certainly more, but there's two parts that we focus on. One is the bread, right? Matthew 26, 6 says this. As they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, take this and eat, for this is my body. But in John 6, 48, he says, yes, I am the bread of life. And then he delineates it. He goes, listen, your ancestors, they ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. And then he talks about the wine. In Matthew, he says, and he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of the many. But in John 6, he says it this way. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person in the last day. And then he says this phrase that's hard for us, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and this is the words that are important, remains in me and I in him. What he's doing is he's inviting us into the divine dance of the Trinity, this relationship where we abide with one another. And so that's what we're gonna do. So I'm gonna pray. And then I'm going to ask you to take and eat. And then I'll pray again and ask you to take and drink. If you're here in the room, if you're at home, we want you to do this together. So bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, this bread that we eat, it's a metaphor. It's not magic. But it slows us down. It helps us to recognize you. And it is important that we look at this so that we can be grateful, not just for this bread that we eat today, but for the bread that we eat every day as your child, as your heir. So Lord, as we eat this, may you bless it. May you bless us as a community. In your name I pray, amen. Take and eat. Let us bow our heads again. And Lord, as we, as we take this wine, this new wine 
pour it out for us. Lord, we want to ask that you not just bless it, not just bless us, but bless all those who need to hear about you, those who have strayed from you, those who, who are in desperate need of this new wine of your covenant, Lord, who, who have been run over by a system and have forgotten the source, who have thought that the system is the thing that saves us and has forgotten that the grace and abundance all comes from you, Lord. May we, may we recognize that as we drink this today, recognizing your sacrifice, but also recognizing your resurrection and being part of this incredible journey of 2,000 years of Christians who eat this bread and drink this wine, this new wine, so that we can remember all that you've done for us. In your name I pray, amen. Take and drink, says scripture. And as you drink, I want you to understand that this is a commitment that you are making to God. This is a commitment to live with him and to live in him. This is a commitment that we might all be together because this is a community that we have been called to. But in the midst of this, I don't want you to forget that this is a challenge, a challenge to remain faithful, a challenge to remain whole, a challenge to bring others into the fellowship so that they might recognize the source and not the system, that they may fall in love with the same Jesus that we have fallen in love with. This is a challenge that God gives to you today as we remember him with this wine, with this new wine.